I'll talk to you now about the third part of the Buddha's teaching. I have mentioned before that there are three parts, Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. Now we have tried to have Samadhi, concentration, and we have tried to have wisdom, Panya. So now we will discuss Sila, moral conduct. And moral conduct is, of course, something we do in everyday life. But it also has an application, a specific application, to a meditation course such as this. Because in the Buddhist, Buddhist tradition, in all of the Buddhist traditions, all the different ones. It is common to reaffirm that one wants to keep these precepts when there is a monk or a nun present. And we call that taking the precept. Now, obviously, one can do that quite well at home and alone. One can make New Year resolutions and as with all New Year resolutions, they get broken and we have to do them again. But when we do it in a traditional way and in the presence of others, there seems to be a greater impact on the mind. It is something that is easier to remember because it has other aspects which surround it and because of that we have a better chance of keeping those precepts. When we do break them there's nothing else needed except to recognize that fact and then make a new resolution to keep it and to watch it more carefully. That's all. Without mindfulness of recognizing when one is not abiding by the precepts, we have, of course, no chance. The precepts are basically completely and utterly familiar to us. They are not very, very different from the Ten Commandments which should be familiar to us. They have one essential difference. And that essential difference is the pragmatism, the realism of the Buddha. That essential difference is that it is not, they're not worded that thou shalt not, or you must not, or any kind of forbidding anything. The way they're worded is we undertake the training to refrain from. The realism of the Buddha tells us 
that we've got to train to refrain from certain actions. And this is a training, just like meditation is a mind training, these precepts are a conduct training. And as we train, we become better at it, until eventually we're so good at it that it doesn't even exist in the realm of our thought process to break in. In the beginning, we have to be careful and watch. And the care that we take also refers to the fact that we know that if we break them, we're making bad karma for ourselves and we are going to suffer. How we're going to suffer depends entirely upon what happened earlier, how much good karma there is ahead of it. But something is boundless. That are doubtlessly going to happen. So we have this wording of we undertake the training to refrain from. And then there are five things that we are refraining from in order to train ourselves in purity. But also at the same time, it is understood that we will try not only to refrain from the negative, but practice the positive. So the five precepts contain that what we refrain from and by inference that what we want to practice. And therefore they are a very succinct and easily remembered It is sometimes understood that one has to first become perfect in this training of moral conduct before one can attempt the concentration and the wisdom. But that's a misconception, one of many, because the better the meditation and the more developed the wisdom, the easier it is to keep the precepts. More wisdom makes it quite simple because we can see all the implications. We will no longer have that idea, if we've ever had it, that once won't hurt. Because once is never just once. Habits make character. Good habits, bad habits. The first of the precepts is exactly the same as the commandments, only worded differently. We undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Now, living beings include everything that's alive. Rats, mice, cockroaches mosquitoes, flies, whatever there is alive is included. And whatever one makes out of that precept is strictly one's own wisdom and understanding. There's no question 
whether this or that living being should be left alive and another one not. Whatever one does, that's one's own responsibility. One's got to come to terms with whatever it is that one needs to arrange in one's life. Who there's no outside source that is hanging over one with the crime and punishment. If you do that, that's going to happen to you. We undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings, and whatever we understand, that's what we're going to do. So there's no question what living being could be killed with other living beings should not be killed. Whatever it is, that's the precept. We also need to understand that as long as we have this body, we will kill. It's the involuntary killing which does not bring about bad karma because the intention of killing isn't there. But there can be the intention of greed, there can be the intention of comfort, there can be any kind of intention behind it. In other words, self-cherishing. And whatever that brings about, it is nothing but a support system for self. But whatever it is, everybody has to come to terms with that by themselves and for themselves. Nobody's going to set up a list of those that can be killed. When we walk, we kill involuntarily. When we breathe in, we kill. When we take antibiotics, we kill. Everybody's got to come to terms with that. That's everybody's personal business. But we need to know it and to see it and try to be as harmless as possible and recognize the fact that having this body already has that implication with it in order to keep it alive, something which has less strength and less life force will undoubtedly fall by the wayside. Whatever it is, that's the way it is. The opposite of killing is loving kindness and compassion for living beings. And we have discussed that at length. That's all very interesting. Now we need to practice it at length. And every encounter we have with a living being, human or otherwise, known or unknown, is a challenge and an invitation for the practice of loving kindness and compassion, whichever way we can do it. We have done many different ways of approaching exactly the same thing 
it would be to everyone's advantage to pick out one of those that works better than the others and practice that. If they all work equally well, it doesn't matter. But most people find one that works a little better as far as the meditation goes. But in daily life, of course, when we are confronted with another person, we haven't got time to sit down and close our eyes and try to remember, now which one worked for me? Oh yes, best friend. Or maybe I can do that quickly. There's no time for that sort of thing. It's got to be on hand. And that's why remembering that which is important is a very useful factor in trying to grow spiritually, not letting the world intrude to the extent that all that seems important again. You can see that the world went on without us splendidly. They didn't need us at all. They were perfectly happy for nine days without seeing us, without hearing from us, without getting any advice from us. Everything worked beautifully, just as bad or just as good as ever. So we don't have to interfere. We can keep on trying to purify and grow spiritually by remembering. The more often we remember, the more it becomes a habit. The more it's a habit, the more it's a habit. Habits make character. And when we have remembered it over and over again, that each living being is an invitation and a challenge, and not somebody to judge, and not somebody to like or dislike. It's just an invitation to practice, that's all. Then, I'm having remembered that a long time, a long time, and very often, it will finally dawn on us that that's what we do. Because the mind is very habit-prone. And the more good habits we practice, the easier it is for the mind. So the opposite of killing living beings is being harmless and practicing loving-kindness and compassion. And again, it's living beings, it doesn't matter what kind. And it doesn't matter where, how, when, size, color, doesn't matter at all. Living beings, from the smallest to the largest. And whether it is threatening to us, whether we think it is something useful to us, none of that makes any difference. Living beings are living beings. One should always start right in one's own home. That's where the greatest challenge is. Because if we live together with other people, they're the ones that we know best. And that they're the ones where we know all their character feelings best. And because we see it over and over again, all the things that they are doing we would never do, we of course have a hard time. If we can't practice at home where 
can be practiced. That's obviously the practice place where it is not only hardest but most rewarding. And loving kindness does not mean passion and does not mean romance and it does not mean attachment and keeping and getting something back. All it means is practicing the spiritual path of purifying one's own heart. That's all it means. And that's hard, but very rewarding. So when we practice at home, obviously our home environment changes. We are practicing. The other people at home might not even know what we're doing. Eventually they wake up to it that we have changed. And seeing that we have changed, of course, they relate to us differently. And we've got a different feeling in the whole household. Next place to practice is at work. With all those people who've never heard of the word loving kindness and who will find it very hard to recognize it even when it stares in their face. Never mind. Wonderful place to practice. Over and over again. They're all doing things I would never do. They're all saying things that we would never say. But that is just an invitation. An invitation to see how much quality of love have I got in my heart. How much is there how much can I actually feel? Now I have said that many times, I'll say it again. If you don't feel a thing, think it. Because thinking is one of the sense contacts, the sense consciousnesses, the sixth one, beyond the five that we all always mention and know. And all sense contacts have as a next step feeling if you think it long enough, you will feel it. Believe it or not, it will eventually happen. But one has to think it as if one means it. And if one actually thinks it as if one means it, it does have a result. Not just sort of superficially because one is a nice person and really doesn't want mean any harm to anyone but with the feeling that I really mean this thought that I'm having and then it will come, the feeling will come so we have plenty of possibilities and opportunities to practice this in fact I don't think anyone is exempt from this, having this opportunity every single day, from morning to night. There are people everywhere. And whether they're ticket sellers or uh, uh, newspaper boys or postmen or whoever it may be, they're all people. And then, of course, there are other living beings which we can also practice on, but it's not quite as difficult. These people we have the most of the second teacher says, I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. Now this goes a little further than stealing. 
it goes to the point where we are extremely careful with other people's property, even to the very smallest item, that we wouldn't ever touch anything that doesn't really belong to us or has been given to us. You know, like um, stationery that belongs to the firm and they've got so much money anyway, so who cares? But it's theirs, it's not ours. And any kind, li anything like that, which is not really our own. So we are as careful with other people's property as we would be with our own, or even more so. The opposite of that is generosity. Instead of taking, giving. Now the more one gives in one's life, and it doesn't necessarily have to be material things, but it often <coughs> is, the easier life is. Because one doesn't have expectation of getting. There was a Walt Disney film once, which I've never forgotten. There was a grasshopper, was the main actor, and he hopped through the forest and was singing at the top of his quite uh, rasping voice. The world owes me a living, the world owes me a living, and he didn't go and provide for his winter nourishment. And when he went past the squirrel's house, he looked to see that the squirrel was putting away nuts and things so that he would have something to eat, and he laughed at him. And in the winter, he died. He had nothing to fall back on. The world does, doesn't owe a living to anybody, and it doesn't owe anything to anyone. We owe. And when we know that we owe, we give. We owe gratitude to everyone that we've ever come into contact with and who has had any kind of connection. They have been either friends or neighbors, workmates, parents, relatives. They have been the people who worked on the farm so that we can eat. They might be people working in the telephone company so we can telephone. They, we have gratitude to you, to everybody. And if we can see that way, that we wouldn't be alive if not all these people were doing their jobs, maybe we would approach them, each one, anyone, conductor in the tram or the train with gratitude whether they that other person would appreciate that or not that's their business it's got nothing to do with us now when we feel that we owe we are willing to give and, and when we are willing to give we don't think that there's anything that we have to be getting the world doesn't owe us anything at all. And anyone around us 
doesn't owe us anything. They don't owe us. If they give us anything, we can be very grateful. If they give us love, appreciation, respect, care, concern, uh, friendship, time, all wonderful. But if they don't, that's their problem, not ours. Our problem is strictly the giving. Generosity is considered by the Buddha the first and foremost of all virtues. It's always mentioned at the top of the list of the virtues that we need to develop. It is mainly the first of the virtues because it means self-forgetting. And self-forgetting is the pathway to losing the self-illusion. And since that is the meaning of the whole of the teaching, the pathway to self-forgetting is, of course, of the utmost importance. As long as we want to get something, we are living in expectation and we're having a lot of dukkha. Because this wanting to get is the craving, which means we're dissatisfied. And being dissatisfied is dukkha. And the more dissatisfied we are, the more neurotic we become. And the neurosis of dissatisfaction creates all the other negativities. Obviously, we can only find fulfillment when the one who is seeking fulfillment has been lost. But at least we can take a stab in the right direction by losing some of this self-cherishing and are interested in spreading out our love and appreciation, our care and concern, our friendship, our time, and our material goods. The interesting part of it is that the more one gives, the more one gets. But nobody believes. With love, it's very easily seen. The more love we spread around, obviously, the more we've got. Now, with money and material goods, people always think when they give something away, they're going to lose it. How can it get lost? It's there. Somebody else is going to use it. And we can't take it along anyway. It's all on loan, isn't it? And as we have it on loan, whatever it is that is material, it needs a lot of looking after. I know some people, very few mind you, who've got so much money that their whole life is taken up with looking after it. Now, if that is an occupation for one's lifetime, it is really, really sad. But there's so much of it, it needs looking after. Now, obviously, we're probably not in that dreadful situation, but everything we've got needs looking after. <coughs> everything has to be clean, 
repaired, replaced, maybe insured. Everything has to be seen to so that it keeps on doing its job. The less there is of that, the less of the burden. The Buddha said we need the four requisites, clothing, food, shelter, and medicine when sick, and the minimum of all that. If we ever take a look at home in our cupboard, we might be surprised. We could probably quite easily supply two or three families with stuff. Everybody has far too much of everything. It's a common difficulty everywhere that people accumulate things. Why do we do that? Why do we accumulate things? It's a support system. The more we've got we think the more we are. It's an absurdity like so many others. Why are we more? Because we have more. And yet, subconsciously, it's ingrained in everybody. Accumulation. Having things around one. It makes it appear as if we were important. And it appears to give solidity to this person because all those things, they seem very solid and they might even be valuable. And if they're valuable, obviously I must be valuable because they're mine. Absurd, isn't it? But totally logical. If the stuff around me is valuable and I call it mine, I must be valuable. A completely logical way of thinking, and yet it's completely absurd. It doesn't have any reality to it. It's all fantasy. Generosity is the most important virtue because it means that we recognize the fact of togetherness, that we do not separate ourselves from the rest of humanity. We realize that wherever we give, that's where it is. It doesn't get lost. But the Buddha said, the purity of the receiver purifies the gift. In other words, we should use a little bit of discrimination and wisdom knowing where our gifts do the greatest good. That doesn't mean that we then wind up with saying, well, nobody's really pure, I better keep it. We just find the best place that we can find. The Buddha said that generosity is divided into three parts. There's the generosity of the beggar, generosity of the friend, and the generosity of the king. The beggar is the one that gives away what he doesn't need anyway, or that what he doesn't feel when he gives it away. The friend shares, shares equally, gives what 
he can. And the king gives away more than he keeps. It's a kingly generosity. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be money. It can be also the skills that we have. Even listening to another person is generosity. Most people would like to talk about their own things. The generosity of loving kindness is giving. The generosity of being concerned. The generosity of being present of helping physically, of helping emotionally if we can, if we have that kind of skill, but also being really there when needed, and of course sharing our material belongings, the money and all that, all those things. Generosity is not done for the sake of gratitude. Gratitude is the other person's business, not ours. Generosity is done for the sake of our own purification, for the sake of our letting go of only being self-concerned. Being generous has a reward in itself, the feeling of satisfaction, of contentment, the feeling of having overcome one's instincts. Our instincts keep us on a very low level of humanity. Our instincts are always directed towards the self-indulgence and the sensual gratification. That's our instinct, if we've got them. But we have the ability to overcome. And generosity very often is that overcoming of instinct. Some people find it quite easy and quite natural to give. Others have to educate themselves to it. And try to get away with as little as possible. This kind of thing needs nothing but recognition. There's no blame. It's very important to remember. Recognition, no blame, change. If we recognize the fact why generosity is important to us, more important to us than to the recipient, then we will practice it. In this tradition, in the Buddhist countries, when monks and nuns receive gifts, it is traditional not to say thank you. It's traditional to give a blessing for it, but the one who has actually and often does say thank you is the giver. He is grateful that he was being given the opportunity to be generous. So it's a totally different re relationship to
through generosity. To have the opportunity to be generous on a, on a level of where one expects some purity, whether rightly or so, that's another matter, but at least one expects it. This kind of thing is a not so well taught in our society. Although we do give gifts, we expect them back. And that expectation negates the generosity. Generosity comes from a full heart, recognizing that there's nothing between us that separates us, that if we have something, it's much better to share it. It's much better to give ourselves and to give of what we have. It means that we find that interconnectedness, that we rejoice when others have something. And if we have been instrumental in it, it's a great joy. You know that Meditation is only possible if one gives oneself to it. That will be the ultimate giving when we can give ourselves away and see reality, the absolute truth, and don't hang on anymore. On the way there, generosity is part of the pathway. And without it, we will have far too narrow a view of life and humanity. If we cannot interconnect through being together with others through our generosity, we are much too tied up in our own affairs. And our own affairs, of course, when we view them in the totality aspect of the universe, they become so insignificant that they are hardly noticeable. So if we think of them only, we have a mind which is concerned with the insignificant. The Buddha praised generosity over and over again. And sometimes the uh, teaching is divided into another way of dividing it, namely into dana sila bhavana, which is very common in the Theravada Buddhist countries. Dana is generosity of giving, and sila is the moral conduct, and bhavana is meditation. The third precept is to refrain from sexual misconduct and that came up when the question about divorce was asked sexual misconduct means that one is unfaithful primarily that it also means hurting another uh, through rape or also through emotional um, um, hurt but it primarily means to be faithful and to be faithful means to be reliable, to be responsible. And that also implies in other aspects of our lives, not just 
on the sexual level. However, the greatest havoc is usually occurring when there is sexual unfaithfulness. That's usually when families break up and when everybody gets into turmoil and to tragedy. And but it does also apply to our faithfulness, our liability and responsibility towards our friends and our relations. To have a relationship with all these people where we can be counted, where we are not just servants of them, but where we are faithful to our friends and helpful and the same with parents and other relatives. In other words, that we are a person that feels quite delighted. And then, when we know we can rely upon ourselves and are not going to be thrown by our changing emotions, we feel at ease about Knowing we are reliable makes us feel at ease. When we know we are unreliable, one day we are this and the next day we are that, it's a very unpleasant thing. That we also hurt others is a second question. We are certainly hurting ourselves. So this third precept concerns our whole way of being together with other people whether we can actually be counted upon. That if we promise something, we're actually doing it. If we have an opportunity to help, will we actually take that opportunity? Will we be available? Are we reliable? And as we know ourselves to be totally and utterly reliable, we have no worry about our own emotional difficulties. They are not going to get in the way. We are reliable. It's a very nice feeling, and it's a very nice feeling because it feels solid, dependable. Someone who is dependable is a person who can depend upon him or herself. And if we can't depend upon ourselves, who are we going to depend on? Have nobody around. People usually look for somebody to depend on. But that's also a myth, because that expectation usually has disappointment in it. But if we can depend upon ourselves, then we have a feeling of safety and security. So not to have Sexual, uh, to refrain from sexual misconduct means the opposite of being faithful and dependable. The fourth uh, precept is the one that's most easily broken, the one that has constant problems with it, and even when one tries to keep it, well, very often people are in a quandary whether this or that is right. If we undertake the training to refrain from lying and harsh speech, it includes gossip, 
It includes idle chatter. It includes backbiting, setting one person against another. So these are the things that are included there. And of course the opposite is that we use our speech for the benefit of others. Noble conversation. The Buddha gave a formula for that and that formula is very um, interesting and useful and we can remember it and try to apply it. All the things that the Buddha taught, if we don't apply them, they have absolutely no value. It's, the formula goes like this. If we know something that can be hurtful and is untrue not to say it. If we know something that can be helpful and is untrue not to say it. If we know something that can be hurtful and is true not to say it. If we know something that can be helpful and is true to find the right time. Which means Impulsive speech is out. And that, of course, includes everybody. Because most people say, just say things for the saying of them. And then afterwards find that it wasn't, first of all, exactly what was suitable, nor was it that which created a better relationship. So if we know something that can be helpful, it's not supposed to be flattering. It has nothing to do with flattery. It has nothing to do with the fact that it has to be ag agreeing. You don't have to agree. The Buddha does not say that you have to backbite him. Idle chatter. That one is the one that's most easily broken talking for talking's sake. It's the cheapest entertainment there is. And as we use it for that, we have nothing to say. Speech should be used for explanation, upliftment, for interconnectedness, for showing one's loving kindness, for having a under, better understanding with another person but not just to talk. Now obviously we can ask another whether they feel well that shows our concern. If we can inject a tone in it which implies that we mean it that it isn't just a politeness which has been said a million times. So, speech should be meaningful. The Buddha often talked about speech because it is our connection to each other. Even though the words are only 7%, as I've already mentioned, the speech itself has a lot of other based 
through it and we connect through it. So that particular precept, the fourth one, is the most difficult to keep for most people and needs the most attention. Using one's speech so that it is a giving of oneself, not just talking. The fifth one is I undertake the training to refrain from alcohol and drugs. And again, it's up to each person whether they think alcohol and drugs means all alcohol and drugs or just one won't hurt or one and a half or one and three quarter. Everybody's got to figure that out for themselves. And anybody who's got a little bit of intelligence can do so. They confuse the mind even more than it is already confused. So the opposite is mindfulness. Bear attention and meditation. Mindfulness is the way to meditation. Mindfulness is our daily practice. I'll talk about that tomorrow when I talk about what to do at home. <coughs> Mindfulness is our greatest <coughs> defense system against any anything that would make bad karma for us. It is a safety and a security. Watching oneself. Now, other people love to watch other people, but only we ourselves can change ourselves. So how many other people we're watching, it doesn't really matter at all. The only one we can change are we ourselves. So mindfulness is our best mental formation for doing that. It includes, of course, also meditation. So we have five things we refrain from and five things that are their opposite. So it's again the substitution of opposites. And if we remember them and if we want to practice them, we will see that it's not quite as easy as it may sound, but it's extremely valuable and rewarding for us. So that's one part of this. And the other part is taking refuge. It's very difficult to find a safe place in this world. There aren't any physical safe places. The only safe place is in the mind, if the mind has become safe. We take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha and the Buddha is not the historical person which he was but the enlightenment principle which all of us have within us there is not a single human being that doesn't have the enlightenment potential within and this enlightenment principle is always there that we can relate to it 
if we want to and if our practice allows us to. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in the highest idea, the enlightenment idea, which means perfect purity, complete and absolute truth, and the overall knowing of everything. That ideal that can be reached by any human being, but rarely is. But for which this practice is designed. Everything else that we think this practice might be for are just steps on the way. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in that, that this is in existence available, possible, and that it creates a complete umbrella of safety where there is no danger if we actually take refuge there. When we take refuge in the Dhamma, it is the teaching that shows us how to get to that idea. And having that as our safety brings a great deal of joy and a great deal of ease to the mind because it finally knows what is most important to do. Everything else is by the way. Only that is important. And although all the other things which are by the way are still need to be done, because the body is there and needs to be kept alive, they no longer contain this absoluteness and importance in them. They no longer contain the thing, whether they work or not, because they have been seen for what they are, a survival principle. <laughs> and a survival principle cannot be called a refuge because it's totally unsafe. Survival principles are very temporary. We can't make it happen to be safe. But when we take refuge in that, which is completely safe, the enlightenment, the highest ideal, and the Dhamma, which is the teaching to lead us there, then we have safety. And refuge means a safe place. And that safe place is then within our own heart and mind. It's got to be in both. And as we have it in, in heart and mind, we do not allow those things to come into heart and mind which bring about our unhappiness or fear. Because we have found a safety. We do not need something that is fearful. Our heart and mind can be totally full of those ideals so that fear can no longer enter. The Sangha, the third of the three, is in this case are meant those that have been enlightened in the past, in the present, and are propagating the teaching for us. 
It doesn't mean everybody who wears the robe, which is another meaning of Sangha, and it certainly doesn't mean everybody who's meditating, which is also a meaning which particularly is rampant in America. Everybody who's meditating is called Sangha. In this case, it means enlightenment. Those who have been enlightened and have propagated it for us. Now, within taking refuge in them, because they're just to be known to be people, but we don't know them necessarily, means that we also have the wish to emulate. The wish to emulate and to become equally safe. Now, that wish to emulate and become equally safe can then remain in the mind and the heart as the only drive and the only direction. And as that remains the only drive and the only direction, nothing can mar the mind's joy and the heart's love because it's the world that's constantly getting in the way. It's not the spiritual ideals. The spiritual ideals do not get in the way. They are the way. This is a traditional way of finding a safety. A safety which means practice. To that, I like to add that we have a shrine which we use for taking refuge in precept. And we have some traditional things always on the shrine which have symbolism to them. Now here in this case the Buddha statue is somewhat small and the little larger one has seems to be sitting under a Bodhi tree. <coughs> now the the Bodhi tree is a, a fig tree and it is the tree that the Buddha sat under when he became enlightened. And it is, or it was, at Bodhgaya, what is today called Bodhgaya, in northern India. But in the time of the Muslim invasion, that tree was cut down. And practically all of the Buddhist monasteries destroyed. That tree never grew again. But, at the time of King Asoka, who was about uh, in the year 250 BC, his daughter became a nun. Her name was Sangamita. And the king allowed her to go to what is today Sri Lanka and then probably Ceylon and she took with her a cutting of the original Bodhi tree it said she took it in a golden vessel maybe anyway it was planted at the then capital of Anuradhapura that sapling was, was planted there and it's still growing it's still alive 
And a sapling from that tree was taken to Bodhaya and planted there. So we can say that today at Bodhaya, the most revered um, item in the whole of that temple structure is a grandson of the Bodhi tree under which the Buddha became enlightened. It's uh, quite large, of course, now because uh, it's also been growing for a long time. But the one at Anuradhapura in Sri Lanka is actually a direct descendant of the one that the Buddha sat under. So sometimes we have uh, statues which show that he was sitting under a Bodhi tree. I think that's what this is supposed to be. Next to it is a very small statue which is an Indian statue made out of sandalwood and uh, very typically Indian. All Buddha statues that we see are culturally influenced, depends entirely what country they were made in. There's one here in London, very beautiful standing Buddha. It's definitely an Englishman no doubt about it, because it was made in England. It's very good looking. But when you see the statues that are made in, in the East, they have not only the culture, but also the features of that country. They are made in the most beautiful way that the maker of the statue can fathom we have no idea what the Buddha really looked like. It is said in one of the suttas that he was very good looking and that his skin was very shiny, but that's about it. And whatever that is, is of course also a personal opinion. It was his son who thought that. Um, the statue is only a symbol. It's a symbol of enlightenment. In the Buddhist time there were no statues. In the Buddhist time there were, and he said to do that, there were stupas, which we still have today. And the stupas usually contain relics. Relics of an enlightened one or the Buddha or some of his disciples. But statues started only about 300 years after the Buddha's Parinibbana. So there were no photographs and no drawings, so we have only the artist's idea of what the Buddha would have looked like. I've told you already about the mudras, the hand motions, and we often find that he's sitting in meditation. So we use the statue simply for the symbolism of the enlightened one. And there are some very beautiful statues which give the person, if they are so inclined, a feeling of devotion because they are very beautiful made. We have in Germany in our meditation center, one which is larger than life 
It's about 200 years old, made in Thailand, and it has a lovely expression on its face. So when people look at it, they feel quite inspired to meditate, because obviously he's sitting in meditation and the expression on the face appears, seems to be one which has come out of the meditation. The other thing that is on a, on a shrine are candles, and they are a symbol for enlightenment. Because enlightenment means light in the mind. And so the candle light is a symbol for that. And the other thing we have are flowers. And here we have quite the right thing. We have cut flowers. And they're not there just for the beautification of the place, although they do that too. They are there to depict impermanence and in a manner to remind us of our own impermanence. Today the flowers are beautiful. Tomorrow they'll probably be on the compost heap. The same with us. We look quite nice today, but when we get a little older or ready to die, then the beauty is all gone and we are probably useful for the compost heap. So the flowers are a direct reminder of our own impermanence and lack of stability. And then we have incense, which we haven't used, but which we will use now. And the incense has a very uh, direct symbolism, namely that the virtue of a person is like the wonderful aroma of incense, and it will go far and wide as far as the virtue will reach. So the wonderful aroma of the incense is a symbol for the completely virtuous person. So these are the symbols that we have on shrines under all circumstances. And here this is a makeshift shrine because they don't usually have one. I asked for it and so we have the minimum. And but we can one can of course decorate it more if one wants to. One can have other things on it. Quite often one finds, if one has been able to get them, a brass deer, two usually. And that symbolism means that the first discourse of the Buddha was given at Isipatthana, the deer park, outside of Benares. And today there is again a deer park there, maybe the descendants of those deer. And the um, Ma Buddhist Society is looking after the place at Sanat. It's a beautiful park and uh, with a very nice temple, and the deer are roaming around there again. So that is the place, and what the Kuti where, or the, yes, the Kuti where the Buddha gave the very first discourse he ever gave has been unearthed, and the remains of it are there. So the exact spot can be seen. And that is the, the deer park, which is very famous, of course, in the Buddhist tradition, 
because that's where the very first discourse after his enlightenment was given to his five friends, the five ascetics who had practiced with him and one became enlightened after at the end of the discourse. The other four became enlightened later. Then, since the words are only 7% of the language, if an enlightened, uh, of the communication, sorry, if an enlightened one speaks, enlightenment is much more possible. And that's what happened in the Buddha's time, and therefore we have a little, a little more difficult for us nowadays, since we don't have the Buddha speaking to us, but Enlightenment is possible wherever there are people practicing. So we can have other symbols, but these are the main symbols. Before we bow three times, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, the devotion, the gratitude, and the commitment and the uh, devotion to the ideal, the uh, gratitude for the teaching, and the commitment to do it. And as we do that, we have a constant reminder, we do this <coughs> day in and day out, as one is wont to do in monasteries and nunneries, we have a constant reminder of what we are up to, what we're doing, unless we do it mechanically and forget, which is also happens, of course. Because the mind is, we call the mind a magician. It can pull a rabbit out of any hat. Anything is possible. It can become enlightened also. So when we bow, we bow with meaning. And also, there's a sense of humility. A sense of humility that maybe I'm not the center of the universe. It's just barely possible. And maybe I don't know it all yet. Maybe there's something else that can be found out. Maybe I haven't quite got the answers to it all. Maybe there are some answers which I haven't seen yet. So in the East, of course, bowing down and putting one's head on the ground is commonplace. Everybody does it. From the age of two, two years onward, it is a, a social custom and everybody does it. But in the West, it's unusual, and therefore meaningful. And it means something. And so when we do a refuge and precept, we, we do pay the respect to Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha through this bowing down, and therefore then have the uh, opportunity to express ourselves without words in devotion and gratitude and commitment and respect. So that is the worshipping of a statue has absolutely nothing to do with that. It's not a golden calf. There's nothing of worship in there. It's strictly our own inner resolve which has to be which shows itself in the physical. We can say and think, but if we also do, it has additional meaning. 
And with that, we have um, a way of, of a resolution which may actually have results. So when, when we do this, what I'm going to do is we're going, I'm going to chant it in Pali, which is the traditional language, and then I will say it in English, and then you can say it in English after me. But before we start, I'm still asking, wondering whether anybody has a question. Yes. Further books. Mm. Yes, I will do that tomorrow. There are enormous number of books in English on Buddhism, and of course, not all are worth reading, but some are certainly worth reading. And uh, I will um, tell you about that tomorrow, at the last talk tomorrow. I'm wondering about any questions about refuge and precept. Yes. Mm, in this case, yes. Mm-hmm. No. The Buddha is not the only enlightened person. The Buddha is the great teacher who became enlightened by himself. Sama Sambudho means enlightened by himself. But using the teaching, others can become enlightened. And as others become enlightened, they propagate the teaching. So it isn't these are people that have helped us to have the Dhamma available today. You see, if it had only been propagated once, probably would have been lost by now. So it's been kept going. Is that clear? Is, is that clear? The ideal that he represents, the ideal of enlightenment which he represents, and the Sangha are those that have given us the teaching because they became enlightened following his teaching and so have propagated as far as to us today. Mm. I don't know what everyone says. I have very little opportunity to hear what everyone says. About Oh, the word Sangha. Yes. The word Sangha is, is particularly used in America, where I've heard it, um, that they say everybody who's meditating is Sangha. But surely we don't want to take refuge in everybody who's meditating. I mean, it's not very safe, is it? I mean, if we have a look at ourselves, we know. <laughs> so we certainly take refuge in those Sangha who became enlightened whether wearing robes or not and have propagated the teaching for us. So it is uh, um, that word is being used in different ways, yes. 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 Yes
But here we have to use it that way in order to make sense. Yes. Pacheka Buddhas. The Pacheka Buddhas are those Buddhas who got enlightened without being able to teach. They are Buddhas that they are uh, enlightened people who couldn't teach. They would have followed the Buddha's teaching, but they got enlightened for themselves, by themselves, and could not propagate the teaching. So we don't know about them. We have no way of knowing where they were and where they are, and how to, we couldn't, one could never find them, because they never uttered a word. And, of course, they are uh, rare. I mean, they're not a, a common thing. They're quite rare. But nothing is known about them. The Buddha never mentions any by name or anything. Am I right in thinking, or is the intention, you can find out the Buddha, the Buddha was the 40th and Seventh. Seventh, number seven, in this tradition. The, the Buddha said, he gave the names of the others. He, there's a, um, in a, in a, in a uh, chant, there's a turret, and in one of the turrets, the names of the others are given. So he, he gives the other names. But that's all, he just gives the names, nothing else. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think for a moment of Buddha Dhamma Sangha as protection as love enlightened love as that which can fill you with complete and total contentment and joy and let that protection and love seep into your heart filling it
making you feel completely safe and at ease. And now think of protection and love coming from Buddha Dhamma Sangha into the heart of the person nearest you in this room, filling him or her to overflowing with joy and contentment, eliminating eventually all dukkha. Give that as your gift to the person nearest you. Now think of Buddha Dhamma Sangha as complete protection and love for everyone here. And let everyone's heart be filled to overflowing with that protection and love so that there's complete contentment and joy in everyone's heart. Now think of the protection and love of Buddha Dhamma Sangha filling the heart of your parent so that there is only joy and no dukkha in their heart. Make that your gift to them. Think of the beauty and grandeur, the protection and love, the complete light 
and purity of Buddha Dhamma Sangha, filling and surrounding those that are nearest and dearest to you. giving them joy and contentment. Think of letting the beauty and love and grandeur of Buddha Dhamma Sangha enter the hearts of all your friends, giving them that sense of being well protected, at ease, safe and secure. Let all the beauty and purity of Buddha Dhamma Sangha that is in your own heart reach out to all the people you meet and know. Those that will be part of your life again when you come home. Let that beauty and purity of Buddha Dhamma Sangha have lit in your heart reach out to all of these people, giving them the gift of that. Letting them share in the joy. Think of anyone with whom you have difficulties and let that person also share in the beauty and love that Buddha Dhamma Sangha
has created in your heart. Reach out to that person too, so that he or she can share in it and have joy from that too. Let the beauty and purity, grandeur and love of Buddha Dhamma Sangha fill your heart to overflowing and then reach out with that to people everywhere, giving the gift of the beauty that has been developed in your heart to as many as we can reach. Now put your attention back on yourself and feel the warmth and clarity and beauty and well-being that the love and the light of Buddha Dhamma Sangha has created in your heart. Let the warmth fill you and surround you feeling safe and protected, at ease and well. May beings everywhere be protected from all harm. <laughs> 